In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Good morning, my friends. I hope your day is beautiful. I have the long-awaited Simon Critchley interview coming right to you. However, I must tell you that due to a poor decision on my end, I had a little bit of microphone problem, so I had to use my backup microphone. At times, it might be a little breathy. However, I can tell you that the wisdom of Simon Critchley shines through. This may be the most important philosopher of our time. He's definitely one of my favorites. I know you'll enjoy this, so thank you for your patience. Look forward to hearing everything you have to say about it. Aloha. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the True Life Podcast. We are currently awaiting one of the greatest philosophers of our time, I believe, Mr. Simon Critchley, who will be joining us shortly. I wanted to give you guys a... uh, And kind of an overview of the book that he's got here. The book is called Ball, and it is a uh, 35 philosophical shortcuts. Awesome. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with the one and only Simon Critchley. He is an amazing philosopher. He's the, uh, the moderator of the Stone Column at the New York Times, author of numerous books from the Greek tragedies to David Bowie, the Hans Jonas professor at the New School in New York. And today we're going to be checking out his new book right here called Bald. Which, well, you know what I really like about it? From, just from the beginning, it's got an awesome cover, but then you take off the dust jacket and it's actually bald. There's nothing <laughs> on there. <laughs> it's a bald book. Yeah, completely hairless object. Yeah, that's cool. Nice. Really well done. I think most people confuse in the beginning. You know, it says bald and apparently you, sir, have no hair, which is yep. uh, what most people think the book is about. But in reality, it's, it's more about being frank. Can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to write this book or put it together, I should say? Well, yeah. I mean, it's been written over the last years, really. And the the, the conceit of bald struck me as a a funny one. One hand, I am bald. On the other hand, I try and speak in in this book in a very blunt, straightforward way. So it's an attempt to speak without a wig or a a toupee, a scholastic toupee attempt to kind of speak directly and also that I was forced to I learned to speak more boldly working for the newspaper in the way I did so it's it's, so it's bald in fact I used that as a hook and then the idea about being speaking boldly speaking plainly clearly about matters which are complex matters I think they can be addressed straightforwardly and can be accessible to a general reader, and, um, and I think that's, that that's often seems like an easier thing to do. It's actually a hard for someone like me. Yeah, I agree. Do you think that I wish more people would speak candidly? It seems to me that that's a pretty big issue in our world today. Is whether it's because people don't want to hurt other people's feelings, or that maybe they don't thoroughly understand, but we tend to gloss over 
or use language that's so ambiguous, it's a miracle that we can actually communicate with each other sometimes. Indeed. Yeah. I try and, I mean, my, my belief since I was a student, really, it was an awful long time ago, was that philosophy could be, philosophy is understandable to people with an interest in it. With, and it's the requirement on philosophy is to make itself, to make itself heard in the, the public realm in, in clear and distinct ways. And that's what I try and do. It's an attempt to kind of not not hide things away, to speak, speak directly and frankly and honestly about things, which I think are of great importance to, not just to me, but hopefully to other people. Yeah. I, one thing I find really refreshing about your work is the way that you argue from philosophy in that like, not all things, only part of life is intelligible. And you, you say in your other book from the Greek tragedies, you mm. know, we can only know what we can know. And, and so much, it seems to me that there's a lot of philosophy professionals that, that believe in something different than the style you argue from. Can you tell people a little bit about the style in which you come from philosophy? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that the, strangely enough, I mean, the, the purpose of me is to divest people of their, their illusions and their illusions of, about things. So people, have, people have huge ideas, huge theories about about history, about what's going on, about the nature of the universe. And philosophy is should set out to kind of question those, to disappoint people in a way. And so I see I see philosophy as a kind of a sobering activity that actually we we know a lot less than we think we know. And that's okay. The philosophical tradition, I guess I'm from, is, you know, I did philosophy at a provincial university. England and then got very interested in in what was going on in in France, Germany, and I learned those languages. Studied what, what's called philosophy, which is much more with philosophy in the English speaking world is dominated by what's called the analytic tradition, which is all fine and good. Uh, some very clever people there have done wonderful things, but it's it's often far too limited to limited in its scope. That philosophy is something which takes place within academic departments, addresses other academics, and is, is a discipline which is kind of, and it's more closely linked to the sciences, to the empirical sciences and to logic. And the approach to philosophy that I take is much more directly connected with culture, with the life that people live, the way people think. And philosophy has to address the conditions of its time and place, the time and place of its emergence, in, and to take account of audience and all of those things. And in this case, that means addressing an audience, audience of people that say read the New York Times and trying to kind of go the you know, really quite interesting insights can be formulated in ways that are intelligible to a newspaper reader. And nothing is really, nothing huge is lost in that translation. And a lot is gained, I think. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, I've got, I don't know, I've got odd, odd sets of interests. So, I've got an interest in, I come out of this fascination with a whole range of thinkers, people like Hegel. And and also I've got very kind of broad interest. For me, it's what I do as a philosopher is connected to the music I listen to, the sport I watch, what I think about, the people I meet and talk to. So it's kind of everything kind of uh, it touches on all sorts of aspects of life. Nothing should be alien to a philosophical disposition, in my view. And it should be out there in the, the culture and in the way people think about things as, as being enclosed in an ivory tower. I like that. Yeah. It, it seems to me like there's been a, uh, like a, a huge problem with explanation over experience. And sometimes people that are in the ivory tower or that are locked in education their whole life, they're learning from a guy who learned from a guy who learned from a guy. Whereas yeah. if, if you're out there playing soccer, if you're out there like yourself playing in a band and, and maybe having a, a good time and, having experiences in life, you get to see things from different points of view. And it seems that that is where you can start connecting all the different philosophies together. I was yeah, and, and trusting sorry. experience, trusting, you know, not, not being, I'm not a skeptic, you know, I'm not really a skeptic by disposition. So if somebody tells me something, I'm inclined to believe it and then try and understand that experience. So, and that means that the scope of philosophy for me is very, very broad. It certainly includes or the music I care about, and kind of philosophers, or what I, you know, 
you mentioned in your email Dick, who's normally seen as a, a sci-fi writer, but he right. was a great philosophical interest. But he was kind of an it was a garage philosopher. He was an out, and that's that's good. Uh, I'm all in favor of that. He's such an interesting guy that was out of his garage and just coming up with these ideas that most people would be jealous of. I mean, sometimes the ideas that are so far out there are the ideas that we can learn so much from, which mm. it brings me to a point in your book for the first time I had started thinking about this. First off, the way you write is amazing to me. You, you're able to pack a lot of information into a short, sweet essay that allows people to think in different ways. And one of the first essays you wrote was talking about the Athenians and how the people they conquered wanted hope and the difference between hope and faith. And I believe that was in a, one of the, like the third essay there where the Athenians, they are going to attack the, am I going to pronounce this right? The millions? Millions. That's the right. millions. Mm. And could you maybe just tell people a little bit about like your ideas of hope and, and how it um, can lead to hopelessness? Yeah. This was an essay that was written in, was published on, I think, Easter Sunday, 2014. So I was using that as a as a way of attacking fears of hope. And at that time, in those distant days when um, Barack Obama and uh, we were still an idea of the audacity of hope against hope, and it seems an awful long time ago now, I was trying to kind of press that idea of hope and use this story, which is a Thucydides, who's a one of the two great historians of, of Greece, the history of the Peloponnesian Wars. And he tells the story of the Athenians. They show up on an island. And they, um, they have a very simple message. They say, it was or we will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and they decide, they try to prevaricate and kind of delay and say, we're going to talk. Athenians don't talk all. They talk to the Melian, their governors. And they... Governors play for time, and they uh, Athenians eventually the Athenians lose them, and they they kill all of the male citizens, and they enslave the, the women and, and children, as was the custom in the ancient world. And one of the things that the Athenians say to the Melians is that you seem to the Melians say we can still hope for things. We can hope that this will end up well. And hope for the Athenians is prodigal. Once you go down that that road, you're never going to be done. Hope, in the view that I argue in this essay, is by clinging to hope, we often make suffering worse. We replace the idea of hope with an idea of courage, which is what I try to do in the essay. And there's a lot really regards to the first point you make. It's, um, I like hiding things. So that in writing, I like to have things underneath the surface, which if you're some people will know all the allusions, references I'm making. There are things going on, but you don't need to know anything about that. So it gives me enormous pleasure to kind of give the appearance of something pretty simple and straightforward. And there's all sorts of things, more tangled things going on beneath the surface of the water. But I think hope is a potentially politically really questionable idea. And and it's often all refusing to face up to reality and we would do better to face up to reality courageously and run away from reality with some idea of hope that i'm up to in that piece yeah it's it's such a fascinating thing to think about to me hope seems like a stripper that works the day shift like she just <laughs> it's so sad in so many ways but so many people cling to it and it's it seems that that's the one thing they have but it's such a I hope this isn't horrible to say, but it seems like such a weak thing to hold on to when you're so, I believe people are so much stronger than they give themselves credit for. And instead of clinging to hope, if they would cling to, I'm not sure belief is much better, but maybe if they could cling to something, I'm not sure what they could cling to, but it just seems to me that hope, I believe you use the reference later in the book as a, as a reed, like we are like reeds and just kind of bending in the wind, but yeah. We're reeds. We're the weakest reed in nature. It's, it's Pascal. We can be wiped away with a... This, I wrote this. This is one of the last... That's the last piece in the book, which is written during April 2020 when the coronavirus was really bad in New York. So it was around that. And the idea that we can be... You know, the idea of human beings as these kind of strong, rational masters of the universe 
no, we're weak reeds that can be blown away with a with a virus, with a, with a <laughs> and everything can can fall apart. And but our strengths consist in accepting that that weakness, right? It's there's there's a great virtue to that. So believing yourself strong when you're not is actually real strength consistent accepting your weakness and embracing it and embracing it in thought line that pascal says is that dignity consists in thinking right and we think in that weakness which is the weakness of the human condition and we should strive to think strive to think well and not ourselves so with regards to hope in place of hope i think we need a really historically informed realism so if we're thinking about situations, say, for example, what's going on in uh, Ukraine right now, to understand that, we need a historical understanding of that part of the world and its history and the complexity of that situation before we immediately run to a response and say, this person is evil, this person is good, we should look for this, and we should condemn that. It's always more complicated than that. Yeah, I could not agree anymore. And it seems criminal to me that we have really intelligent people that utilize media or maybe the lack of education of some people to simplify things. Like everybody should know that things are much more complicated than we're being told. And it saddens me to think that people turn to hope. And it kind of begs the question, like when we were speaking about the audacity of hope and Mm -hmm. Barack Obama is is such a beautiful speaker and the rhetoric that he used in order to get people to think things was magnificent in, in how he did it. I don't agree with that, but philosophical standpoint, mm-hmm. doesn't it seem almost criminal that people so smart can use rhetoric to change the behavior of such mass amounts of people to do cor- horrible things? Yeah, I think it's, I wrote a piece, uh, I got into terrible trouble for this in <laughs> 2008 called Barack Obama and the American Void. Barack Obama in a Harper's magazine, and it was it wasn't an attack on Obama; it was an attempt to understand him. And that's why I read I read all of his autobiographical works. Right. At that time, there were there was a, already a lot to read. Now there's a lot more. He had the extraordinary ability of appearing to be something that people wanted. So he could to liberals, he would appear liberals. To more conservatives, he would appear. People that were concerned with, you know, let's say, you know, the politics of race, he could appear to be concerned with the politics of race. He was kind of like a mirror that reflected. It reflected back what people wanted to see, and that's, that's brilliant when you yeah. with such soaring rhetoric. But yeah. that, what was at the heart of that was something uh, deeply empty, and he was doing that for, let's say, understandable reasons. In the sense in which, in the context of Bush too, there was another. Again, this seems terribly kind of old-fashioned to think, to think these terms, but the, the kind of division that was experienced in the early after, after 9-11 and the, you know, the campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq had led to this real beginning of a divisiveness in the United States. And Obama was offering a kind of a balm to kind of heal that. And it worked. It worked. But it doesn't mean that we should... But if that hope is just... A kind of a nice thing to say that covers over the same operations of power, let's say the same foreign policy, the same the same drone strikes, the same the same use political assassination and the rest, then I think there's a we can accuse him of being uh, hypocritical to say the least. So I, I don't know whether I think some if you think of someone like Thinides, it's actually quite bleak, right? There isn't I mean human affairs always going to be defined by conflict and the attempt to tell lies and foster illusions and all we can do really is to try and point that out and to try and take people with us and but is that going to produce the kind of change that is often talked about politically no i don't think that such a thing is is possible so so i think i'm um yeah i'm a a little bit of a realist and a pessimist and a skeptic when it comes to political talk and political on whichever side actually yeah, I agree. I think it's fascinating to think about. And you know, I wonder what Thucydides would say today about what he might, if he was telling the story today yeah. about the story he told about the Peloponnesian War, I would think he would be telling the Ukrainians the same thing. Like there, 
there's, I don't know, I often wonder what it would, if the time of Thucydides and the wars that happened are no different than the wars that are happening now. And it seems to me that human conflict, as you said, is something that is always with us and it's so devastating, but it seems to be the one thing that propels us forward at the end. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, war is the, you know, <laughs> is the kind of, in a way, the mother of invention and even mm. philosophical invention. It's a, you can plot through philosophy in relationship to, to war. War is, but one thing I'd say would be, I remember there was a wonderful, um, I mean, one of the people, I don't know, but I was really happy endorsed the book was Horace and the Mentarian who had some wonderful movies, but one movie must be around 2004 was called The Fog of War. And The Fog of War was, it was a long interview and he has a very particular kind of interview technique and even camera technique, which is really good, was with uh, McNamara, who was a defense secretary in the, or secretary of state under Nixon and the Johnson in, in the American involvement in Vietnam. And was seen on the left as the the great evil figure, the great Satan of the America's involvement in, in Vietnam. Okay, so Mara's just interviewed and he's asked he's asked questions. He's a very intelligent man. And he says the first rule of war is very simple sympathy with the enemy. Sympathy with the enemy. And that's what the Greeks were very good at. We're very bad at that. So if we're interested, say, for example, in what's going on now in, in Russia and Ukraine, then we begin with sympathy for the enemy, in this case the Russians, and try and understand how the world. And I think they're not crazy, they're not deluded. There's a deep historical picture that drives a deep sense of uh, grievance. And that has to be understood if you engage in anything like conflict resolution. Or diplomacy, or if people just go around saying he's evil, or you know he's a satanic figure, he's a dictator. You're missing the point. You have to understand the context out of which he's speaking, and try and understand that before you understand, get a full picture. And that means, with regard to the news media, it does mean going deeper than the information that we're, we're provided with. That's for sure. So I'm not saying. We should uh, you know, defend the Russians on the contrary, but you have to understand the way they see the world and the the sense of victimization that they have, the grievance they have, and the sense that in their minds they're defending Ukraine against what they see as a, a nationalist, even Nazified, you know, government, which is and they're trying they're defending the Ukrainian people against their government. I think it's a wildly to say, but you have to understand it before you can engage. So the first thing you do if you're actually thinking through concrete situations is begin with the people the enemy. I think this is a as crazy as of time it is right now, it's such a beautiful opportunity to understand philosophy. Like it's I think you're giving people an education right now on philosophy and how to see the world in a way that is more complex and in a lot of moving parts than in and in reality, which brings me back to your book, I've noticed through your book that there's this beautiful ebb and flow. And just so everybody sees it again, this is the book right here, ladies and gentlemen. It's called Bald. And it is a book that you definitely want to read. And I've noticed throughout your book, there's this ebb and flow of like wonder and disappointment and this movement that goes between the divine and time that seem to kind of run through the book. Okay. And We've already spoken a little bit about the ebb and flow of time from the Ukraine to the Peloponnesian Wars, but there seems to be another strand that I've noticed, and that is the divine and time. You know, we, we go from Dostoevsky's Inquisitor to mm -hmm. Philip K. Dick, which both have a element of the divine in them. And I was wondering, what is it? Is it do you find those particular two things to be? fascinating or did, did you realize that you wove those stories in between each other or is what can you tell us about that it's a, a lifelong fascination with with religion from a perspective which is not really a, a faith perspective that people would say here i don't have a i'm fascinated oh i feel most closely the kind of the pull of certain strands of christianity but 
And in fact, I'm just opposite where I am now in New York is opposite St. Patrick's Cathedral. Oh, wow. See, there we are. Look, St. Patrick's That's beautiful. That Rockefeller Center, the other side of the street. Yeah. And I'm fascinated with that. And I don't, I'm impatient with what I see as evangelical atheism, which was maybe not so fashionable now, but was very much in mode with people. Uh, Christopher Hitchens and and so there's a an attempt to I guess very simply to see religion as a social phenomenon which is shared and which is real for the societies that experience it and to take that the kind of in the way that an anthropologist would and so there's religion in all many of the essays in the book but just to pick one and it was you mentioned in your email that perhaps we could think about it's i wrote a series this is in 2019 i was living at and, and working there for a few months i then formed this idea of writing short essays from athens and i did about eight of them and this was not my idea at the time i began to get interested in what's called elefsina or elefsis or elusis people sometimes say in in english it's the ritual site just outside of Athens where, where the meeting took place. And I went there, woman that runs the site, went there with, with a couple of friends and studying it and then reading it through. And there we have, um, we have an interesting conundrum. On the one hand, we think of Athens as you know, the birthplace of democracy, which it was. Nobody had the idea of a political rule based on the equality of all citizens before, but that's what the Athenians, and they were intensely legalistic people, very litigious, and they made decisions in the public square. They declared the law. And on the other hand, up the road from Athens is this place, Elephsis, which was, was an obligation on all Athenians in the mystery. And we don't know what happened. And uh, I try and, as it were, explain what we, what we can explain with some degree of the essay. But there's a connection between democracy, rule of law, policy, and participation in sacred mysteries. These two things are not in contradiction. They're consistent with each other. And for us, it's quite tricky. What can be between being a citizen and taking in a secret mystery, the thing about this, the mysteries is that whatever happened in Alephsis had to stay in Alephsis and nobody could betray things because they would be, uh, they'd be killed. And so to take seriously the dimension of ritual in society and, to, and not to be dismissive of religious belief, but again, to try and understand it and to try and understand it not as a, a set of cognitive states in the sense in which, you know, when people that don't understand religion will meet a religious person and say, well, do you believe in the existence of God? Do you believe in immortality? Or do you believe in the life to come? People are unclear about that. They'll still participate in the practice. They'll still do the rituals. And it's that ritual that interests me. And when we're doing things together without necessarily doing it. And how those weird mysteries could be connected to the activity of the lifeblood of Democracy kind of interests me as well. I love that the series you did on Alephsis, like it was a little disheartening because everybody wants to believe that there was this incredible, mysterious, psychedelic experience that happened there that overwhelmed everybody. Mm-hmm. And the, the truth may be a little bit more sobering. Okay. However, when I read your essay on that, it really made me believe that that in fact is what we're missing and it ties together religion. You know, when you have a ritual or a rite of passage like that. It's something that, that not only points to the mystery, but you get to participate in the mystery with. Mm-hmm. So it's like everybody gets to work together and, not, and see themselves through this rite of passage. And it seems to me that that is what religion is. Religion is this understanding that we are all part of the whole, regardless mm-hmm. if you call it God or Buddha or Allah. It's mm-hmm. this understanding that we participate in something that additionally points to the goal. And yeah. I think that even reading your book, it seems to me if I peel back a page or two or, or some of the beautiful artwork in the words that you've used, I can see it pointing to that. Like, I think we're moving towards that. 
towards a, a type of awakening. And I hate to use mystical terms like that, but it seems that there is this new spirituality being developed and it comes from the conflict that people like Hitchens and Harris have put out there. Like, no, you can't have this. This is where all evil is from. And I've got that topic from your book. And it, I just want to say thank you for that. It's, it's well done. And I really like the, the part on Eleusis and the fact that you went there and you got to see the little well where Demeter would pop out of or uh, Persephone yeah. would pop out of. And maybe you could explain a little bit more to the people about what it was like to go there. There was a, the mysteries were over uh, eight days and the participants in the mystery was of a series of activities, slow procession. There would be also various kind of sacrifices and offerings were made and then eventually they would make their way along the, the sacred way to, and and they'd be out the temple site and the temple's a series of theatres, like a series of stages uh, and you go through a, there's a kind of, there's a drama movement of the stages, it's it's extraordinary and also the Aeschylus, the great Greek tragic poet was from desecrating the some of the some of the ritual activity onto the stage. So outside, the night is falling. There's some fire. People are fasting. They've been fasting for a long time. And there is dancing. There is fire. There's the ritual to begin. And a drink, which is called. And this is where a lot of the uh, theories take root. The Kukayon was a kind of um, hallucinogenic, some people have thought. And therefore, when the this guy went through they were tripping i mean that that might be the case there might have been a psychoactive ingredient in this drink but people were people were they were hungry they were engaged in important venture participation in the mystery that uh, you got to do once twice but most people did it once in the and they knew that something huge importance was going to be shown to them so they were in a susceptible state, and what they experienced, they experienced together. It was also an, an egalitarian. So, for example, the oracle at Delphi, very, very rich to get into to Delphi to afford the massive extortionate fees they required. But Alephsis was basically, there could be slaves, there could be there were children, men, women, and young, all together. And in that, and then there are a series of things that you basically get because the, the site of Alephsa was where Demeter, after she lost her daughter, in Alephsis, and she's crying, crying into this well. And then God appears and says to her, you know, there's a way through it, and we'll intercession. And then eventually her daughter is returned. Demeter is returned to her, but she's tricked. She eats a handful of pomegranate seeds, which would oblige her to return to the to Hades, to the, the world partner for months every year. So that's the story. So it's about a mother, a lost daughter who returned to return to the underworld every year. And the word, the name in Greek is series in Latin and linked to cereal, right? To to grain, to Cereal and in Greek, cereal is dimithriaka, right? So the, the the idea of cereal. So what? Another way of looking at this this mystery. It's about it's it's a reenactment of foundations of society, and this needs to be reenacted in order that there will be a harvest, there will be grain, and there will be food. So this idea, which is sort of lost to us. Which was there in just about every society, every kind of Neolithic ancient society, was the rituals that, that the society, the rituals that people in, were involved with, were about the reproduction of this social form. How does that continue? And the social form requires food. So at the center of, or rather to the side of the, the mystery site, is a huge and the goddess is grain. The goddess is food. And by participating in this risk, you can hope for the continuation of life through, through nourishment. But maybe there may be a more, more mysterious aspect to it in terms of this could be an idea of eternal life or a life that is reborn, that, that is re renewed. But 
What happened in the this, participants go through this series of stages. It takes an awful long time. They're hungry. They've been given this barley, water, grain, drink, active substance in it. They're moving through these stages. Then they get to the the central area, stereon, and in the which is enormous. It's like an enormous theater. You can just see the remains of it. It's enormous theater in the center of this huge space. It would have been darkness, torches, flaming, or something called the Anacteron. And in the Anacteron was where the priests, the heroes, who were just from two families, would engage in the rituals. And we don't know anything about what, what happened, but there are three words that are reported, actually, I think from a Christian source, a later Christian source, and three enigmatic words which are dromina, dagnumina, and legomina. Things done, things and things said. So things were done, things were shown, said. What was, what was shown, what was said, we don't know. Just be, and this is the opinion of the archaeologist I was talking to, it might just be that it's grain, right? is the you know, is a head of, of barley or of wheat, and this means showing this means that there is food and there will be milk. And so, the religious ritual is the the possibility continuation of life, and that of course you know, finds an echo in all of ritual connected with Christianity and with many other religions, right? We get the death. We get the death of uh, on Friday, and then the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So, yeah, this is not lost to us. Is there a spirituality emerging? Maybe I think there's a, a. I think we have to accept that religion is not going away. Religion has to be understood and grasped as a social phenomenon and respected too. Yeah. That's, I guess, what I say for a start. And I think in this country, in the United States, that means taking extremely seriously the Bible and Christianity in particular, because the extraordinary thing about Christianity is that it's not just the religion of of the people from you know, Europe in here. It becomes the religion of the former slaves, right? And it gives a common rhetoric to the oppressor and the oppressed to and which has all sorts of cross-racial possibilities and so i think if you're if you're interested in understanding this place the states and understanding what might be possible to begin with a kind of full understanding of the the bible is uh, the bible has possibilities which maybe we take a little bit more seriously yeah that was really well done thank you for that okay. it's, a, it's a great i'm envious that and it makes me inspired to want to go there and have that same yeah. new form of a Lucis trip, you know? And it reminds me in your book, you, you're a big footballer and there's yeah. so many similar, have you thought about the similarities between being in a football match and being at a Lucis? Like they're both yeah. kind of psychedelic. It's like, you're this team together and you're experiencing life and loss and the potential to win. And in so many ways, it, it seems like a sports is something that we can, in a weird way, it has taken the place of the ritual. And yeah. those of us who have gone to a big game and been part of a crowd, I use an example of going to the horse races. That's like one of the only spots you'll see a millionaire hug a homeless person. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a, an emperor or a slave, but we find ourselves in these moments, be it a Lucis or be it at a football match or at a horse race, where we can let go of the labels that were put upon us and mm -hmm. just enjoy ourselves as the unity there. I think that's something to be said about Eleusis. I had one more point that I wanted to ask you. Are you familiar with this idea of ontology recapitulates phylogeny? I think I'm saying that right. Mm -hmm. Where you know we start off as like a sperm and we meet the egg and then we become this little tadpole. Like we relive every stage of our evolution oh, yeah. in the womb. Mm -hmm. And might that also be what's kind of going on at Eleusis? Like we go there and mm -hmm. we we become one and we see that everybody has loss. Like people lose their children. People die. When we see that, it kind of breaks down the barriers and we come together. And then at the end, like you say, we're given food and we're like, look, it's going to be all right as long as we work together in order to do this. And I, yeah, I just wanted ritual, to bring that up. Yeah, the ritual, you know, reenacts or replays the 
the history of the of the society, indeed the species. So yeah, I agree with that. And in relationship to sport, well, and in particular soccer, I spend most of my time <laughs> reading about, watching, and thinking about. It's one powerful place ritual activity goes and it's extremely interesting so one there's a couple of pieces on soccer in, in the book and one of them is from I, I've been there going there for about five years there's a bar a little football club bar and uh, I know all the people and there's a whole ritual connected with that really know them I mean I don't most of them don't speak English and my Greek is poor but we're we're supporting the same team we're together and the levels of, I don't know, frenzy, collective frenzy, which we're engaged with, are extraordinary. And then, and also, Sunday, what day today is Tuesday today. On Sunday, my team, Liverpool, played Chelsea in the League Cup final. It was, and I was in the one of the Liverpool FC bars in eight called the Grafton, and it was absolutely wild with. And when we won, won, the noise, the kind of the, the sheer joy, the shared joy that we experienced at that, at that moment, it was. And then singing, so the way in which sport, soccer works through song. And we, in Liverpool, we have a lot of songs, and some will begin the song, and then you, you're watching the game and singing songs. The ways of dealing with the the anxiety or tension of watching the game. You don't win, or if you're going to lose, but you hope that you're going to win. And so I think you can learn a lot through that. And these people, you know, so the people I watched the game with on, on Sunday, and this this happens a lot to me. There's two or three people I'm quite close to, but the bar's full of strangers. For the purposes of watching the game, we're friends. We're on the same team. We support the same we're crowd. And this isn't just a activity this the whole set of values and beliefs and this means a lot more than 22 men kicking a piece of plastic around on a, on a pitch this is uh and also with me this is really important what living areas of my life are that connect me with the past i can tell about the past i can remember the past my father was on my grandmother's grave Emblem went weird at all and showed it to someone. And yeah, well, she was a Liverpool fan, obviously. And then, so we've got, if we say, just say my grandmother, grandfather, my father, me, son who's 30, that's 100 years support for this team. And it's not just about the team, it's a commitment to a whole, whole framework. And that thing, and it's passed on as you are watching it and celebrating. There are very few areas of life. That resonance, it seems to me. You know, this brings up such an amazing point to me because we were talking about in your book, you spoke about time yeah, and how our idea is that we move forward through time. But what you just explained to me yeah. is that, is it possible that you have experienced the same time as your grandmother, your grandfather, and that your son will by going and experiencing these games and singing the same songs and hugging the same stranger when so-and-so scores a goal or you're the first mm-hmm. pint or whatever, like, isn't it amazing to think that we can see and experience time? We can move through time, but no one talks about that. But I think you get into that in your book a little bit. Like, what do you think about that? Uh, it's right. I mean, it's, I was sent, I was, sent, I was offered a ticket to the game by my cousin, David, who, and I couldn't get back because of work here, work commitments in New York. Uh, he went, and his father went to go to see games in the 1950s. And, Ray and my dad went to Liverpool play. And my cousin and I maintain this close connection around the team. And he, he looks a lot like his dad. And I suppose I look like my dad. And so we're both ghosts at that point. We're, we're being ghosted by the past and we're trying to pass that on down to the next. Since whereas the order of time gets very confused, we have an idea of time as a, as a linear. Time is a line. No longer now, the past, now, the present, and not yet now, the future. And that is a kind of linear idea of time, which is how we get through the days. 
But there's also an idea of time as a circular, as a time when time, when in a sense, merge and mix. And this is something that, I mean, Philip K. Dick calls orthogonal time, which he explains as a circle that contains everything. And he, which I think is a lovely image from Dick from the end of the book, where I talk about this, he's thinking about orthogonal time as a circle contains everything. And he, he compares this that was just as grooves on an LP contain that part of the music which has already been played here after the stylus track. Think about it in terms of an image of an LP. Think about that in, say, the seemingly uh, final chord at the end of uh, the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper, which on the original that, that chord would just keep you know, gather an intensity. At that point, the future begins to and blur. Yeah, and that's that's both a beautiful thing and a slightly terrifying thing, in a sense that we are haunted by ghosts and we are ourselves ghosts who maybe will haunt others in the future. Um, teaching Shakespeare's Hamlet, this, and I'm very preoccupied with ghosts. <laughs> that's what I'm meant to be doing today. Anyway, so yeah. Fascinating stuff. The time isn't a line, it's at least a circle or a loop. And we can't simply do past, present, future. And most importantly, if we think we're, this is what I, I put extra in the book on tragedy. If we think we're through with the past, then we're ruined because the past is going to destroy us. So we have to respect the past, embody the past, live it, pass it on to the next generations. Yeah, like it's beautiful. First off, thank you so much. Is there, I've got all your links below. Is there anything else that maybe you could leave us with before you leave? Like, what do you want people to get out of this book that if you could tell people or, or hope that, maybe not hope, but what would you want them to get out of this? I'd like them to, well, it's the, the idea that, the idea, obviously, kind of open mindedness, an open minded fearlessness. That's what I hope. Is communicated by, by the book. If you, I mean, you you can live in, in it. It's easy to live in fear, and in a sense, the world makes more sense in terms of living in fear. You live in fear of what's going to happen, what someone's going to say about you, you know, so on and so forth. Particularly with social media and the rest. But I think there's a kind of, I think if we can have a kind of a fearlessness, a fearlessness, an open mindedness, and connected with that. It might not come through in the book so much, but it's certainly what's behind it is, to, is a kindness to treat things with a kindness and, and not to assume that you know, not to assume you know what they mean and you can already interpret it, but to allow yourself to be surprised by phenomena. And that's, you know, this, this is like a version of Dave Chappelle's mantra be nice and don't be scared. If I could get people to think philosophically scared that would be great so one thing i, I try to encourage it's very hard to encourage is yeah is courage it's fearlessness when it comes to, to thinking and this doesn't belong to any elite people this is completely accessible the most fantastic things ever written in the history of the world are instantly available and, you know, you can just swim in them or listen to them or whatever it might be. And it's, and also I think that I'm very passionate about, which is kind of how I put myself out of a job, is in a way I believe in teaching, but I believe much more importantly in, in self-teaching, in being autodidacts. And I'm very fond of people that have cultivated amateur knowledges of things. And I wish there were more, what we need, we need, Less education and that used to be what public life, but now we can do that. And we use this. Well, fantastic! I think you accomplished that. I think that your words paint a picture of fearless experience and instills in people a curiosity that helps to inspire their own exploration. And I, I've read multiple articles multiple times, and I keep getting things into there. So. Thank you for your writing style and your mission to come out there and, and try to help 
people help themselves by investigating more. And um, I really thank you for taking time for me and my audience. Ladies and gentlemen, buy this book, Bald. It is a masterpiece. It's fun to read. Where is it at? It's fun to read. And you'll learn a lot. I know that I did. And doctor, you're welcome back here anytime. I know you have other books. I would love to talk to you about them. I hope you have a great day. I hope Thank Liverpool you very much, the best. Okay, have a good afternoon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Bye. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that... I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, Go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.